You're listening to Leaning Toward Wisdom, the podcast, season 2022, episode 8. Your time follows your focus. James Frank Dobie was born in Live Oak County, Texas in 1888. He was a writer who focused on folklore. And he once wrote this line, there are just three essentials to a good story. Humanity, a point, and the storyteller. Greetings and welcome inside the Yellow Studio. My name is Randy Kentrell. I am your host here coming to you from Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas. Between 2005 and 2015, research bore out that podcasts were likely to last 12 episodes before they would fade. And since then, I am fairly certain that the number of episodes before pod fading, I'm pretty certain that that number has shrunk. I've read a number of things that have indicated that after seven episodes, in fact, there are a number of podcasts that never make it to episode seven. And here we are at episode eight, just for this season, a podcast that has been in existence for over 20 years hard to imagine. No, they're not all online anymore. I have iterated this podcast at least five or six times. I think this could be, I'm not positive about it, but it could be iteration number seven. And I've been in this iteration for a few years now, Ah, but that's not the point. The point is it's really easy to begin something. But stick-to-itiveness, well, stick-to-itiveness seems to impact every human endeavor, including podcasting, which is largely a platform for digital storytelling. Starting is easy. Staying with it? Okay, not so much. And, well, come on, there's this famous, there's this famous scene from Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. It also does help to have a point. I was having a perfectly nice trip until you walked into my life. I walked into your life. Who was that who talked my ear off on the plane? Who was that? I'm curious. Well, who told you to book a room? I did out of the goodness of my dumb old heart. Boy, you're an ungrateful jackass. Well, go ahead. Sleep in the lobby. See if I care. I hope you wake up so stiff you can't even move. You're no saint. You got a free cab. You got a free room. And someone who'll listen to your boring stories... I mean, didn't you, didn't you notice on the plane when you started talking, eventually I started reading the vomit bag? Didn't that give you some sort of clue, like, hey, maybe this guy's not enjoying it? You know, everything is not an anecdote. You have to discriminate. You choose things that are, that are funny or, or mildly amusing or interesting. You're a miracle. Your stories have none of that. They're not even amusing accidentally. 
Honey, I'd, li I'd like you to meet Del Griffith. He's got some amusing anecdotes for you. Oh, and here's a gun so you can blow your brains out. You'll thank me for it. <sighs> I, I, I could tolerate any, any insurance seminar. For days, I could sit there and listen to them go on and on with a big smile on my face. They'd say, how can you stand it? And I'd say, because I've been with Del Griffith. I can take anything. You know what they'd say? They'd say, I know what you mean. The shower curtain ring guy. Whoa. It's, it's like going on a date with a chatty Kathy doll. I expect you to have a little string on your chest, you know, that I pull out and have to snap back. Except I wouldn't pull it out and snap it back. You would. And by the way, you know, when you're, when you're telling these little stories, here's a good idea. Have a point. It makes it so much more interesting for the listener. <laughs> Except for the fact that John Candy was just such a lovable character and seemed to be such a terrific human being. You just, I mean, you feel really sorry for the guy. But listen, it's a famous scene and it is completely true. Ah, but the subject really isn't about telling stories and having a point. The story is about sticking with it staying with it. Why do so many podcasters quit? Why do so many people quit anything? Uh, the easy answer is because quitting is easier than sticking around. It's hard to stick around because focus, focus is required to have a point in a story and focus is required to make a go of something. Well, anything. I mean, like that friend who rambles when telling a story, hopping down every bunny trail all along the way. And it exhausts us. It distracts us from whatever point he may have been hoping to make. Zig Ziglar said, lack of direction, not lack of time is the problem. We all have 24 hours in a day. I regularly would catch myself asking people, We'll be in a conversation and I'll ask people to go back in the con basically hit a rewind button. And I do that because they will begin to tell a story when some, at some point in the story they are telling, it reminds them of another story. And so now in mid story, well, I say mid story, I don't know where they're at in the story. I just know that it hasn't completed. They take a detour and they happily take this detour and they take us along with it. And minutes later, I'll say, well, what about, what about that first story that you started to tell? What happened? Usually almost a hundred percent of the time they'll respond. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Yeah. And then and they get back on track and continue with that story. We all struggle with focus. Okay. Some more than others. Staying on point is one thing. Having a point. Okay. That's something else, but you know, listen, they both share the same DNA. Time management. Uh, this has been popular as long as I've been alive. And I presume before it's wildly popular. Now it is incredibly, in my opinion, ineffective. I mean, if we had solved that problem, it would be tantamount to us solving the diet problem. There are books and books and books and books and all kinds of organizational tools that are produced every year, all kinds of training that is produced every year about time management. Ditto when it comes to dieting. 
is just largely ineffective. And frankly, mostly because I think people don't want to do it. It's hard and people don't want to do hard. How did you spend last week? You had 168 hours last week. Well, come to think of it, you have 168 hours every week. What did you do with 168 hours last week? Well, it wasn't last week, but it was a couple of weeks ago. Rhonda and I, we took a trip, a getaway. And we went to our favorite place for such retreats as that, Hot Springs Village, Arkansas. In fact, I love it so much, I decided to do a podcast about this place. Oh, yeah, and we're way past 12 episodes or seven. We're into the 70s now. And we began this podcast not even a year ago. We began this podcast, I don't know, I'm guessing 270 days ago. You know why I know? I put a widget. I put a, a little, it's, it's a little piece of software on the website, which you can find. I'll put a link in the show notes, but you can find it by going to HSV, which stands for Hot Springs Village, hsvinsideout.com. Well, there's a little widget, a little sidebar widget that keeps track of how old the site is kind of handy. I put it there because listeners were like, how long y'all been doing this? And I'm like, I don't remember. So I got tired of calculating it, but I digress. So a couple of weeks ago we went and that's where we spent the entire week. We, we spent, we probably spent a little bit more than 168 hours there. There's also a particular place in Louisiana that we sometimes enjoy going to and getting away. And we may spend a week there, 168 hours. And it's kind of like this favorite place that we have in Arkansas. It's not a place with a lot of excitement. It's not a place with a whole long list of thrilling, exciting things to do, you know, thrilling nightlife, high level entertainment, whatever that might be. Well, truth is Rhonda and I, we're not attracted to those kinds of places or the, that kind of activity. So these are places that suit us and there's some history in both areas and that's kind of cool. And both places are pretty places with big trees. Now in Louisiana, there's a few plantations that you can go visit and we have visited them numerous times. There are these old Southern live oak trees and they are magnificent. I mean, just magnificent, you know, and your imagination starts to turn when you realize that some of these trees, they have been there since before the civil war. And you look at these, these plantations and you realize just how difficult life must have been for slaves in early America. They're gangster legacies over in Arkansas. There are miles of trails. There's waterfalls. There's again, there's big, big trees. I can stroll the grounds of old Louisiana plantations in the course of 168 hours in a week. And I can see how the slaves once lived. Well, okay. Listen more accurately. I can try to imagine. I can try to imagine how they existed. In fact, on our most recent trip to that area, I remarked to Rhonda, you know, our very worst day is vastly better than their very best day. And so it's really not hard to be grateful in those moments. You walk around these places and you see it and focus is pretty easy. Focus is pretty easy. As you look around a place like that, a place that I have visited before and a place where I have had and always do have similar thoughts. 
thoughts about how hard slavery, I got news for you. Life was hard as a free man in early America, seemingly virtually impossible if you weren't. I mean, I would think about the plantation owner's family and I can walk these places and I can think, so here I am in 2022 burning 168 hours in a week, just like they burned in a, in, in their day and age. Cause a week is a week. doesn't matter where, where you live. It doesn't matter what era of history you occupy. And I'm thinking, you know, <laughs> the average American, in fact, the below average American does not endure a life as hard as the plantation owner's family likely endured. And slaves, again, it's completely unimaginable to me. 168 hours, one week. Well, getting away from our routine, which is largely what we do when we go on vacation and we take these trips, it, it hopefully it helps us focus. It helps us concentrate on things that may be more important than the seemingly urgent matters that often consume our 168 hour weeks. In fact, in the last trip that we took to this Louisiana area, I did a podcast on my iPad, something I never do. It was done by zoom, uh, but it was my only option at the time. And it was another podcast that I was doing at the time with a co-host. Um, it, it, it didn't pod fade. We just ended it after a number of years. But in that episode, I remember, I remember us because it was around Thanksgiving and we of course had this Thanksgiving theme. We were, we were coming up on a new year and we talked very briefly about how we were approaching this new year. And during a new year approach, a lot of people resolve to accomplish various things. Most fail. They'll give up, they'll quit. And admittedly, it's an ongoing challenge for all of us. This thing called focus is a tough, tough thing for all of us. Discipline, staying with it. And specifically, I'm thinking about narrowing down the focus on business ideas. So I'm doing this podcast and I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about what we're talking about with people making these New Year's resolutions. And at the time, I was... I was wrestling with a couple of different business things and my tendency is to have too many mental irons in the fire and it's problematic until I finally will ditch some and then I'll get narrow in my intentions. Now I almost always do figure it out, but only after a considerable amount of wasted time. And some people will argue, well, you're not wasting time. You're taking the time to figure it out. Well, that's a positive way to look at it. Mostly I think they're being kind because for me in real time and even looking back historically, it doesn't feel like I'm doing the right thing. It doesn't feel very productive. It feels, it doesn't feel like I'm figuring out, even though admittedly I am it, frankly, it feels like I'm just not being disciplined enough to have the focus that I would like to have the temptation I think for many of us, if not all of us is to go broad, let's go broad in our thinking, right? Cause that's the best path for opportunity. It's that whole leaving our options open kind of a thing, you know, and some people, they, they promote this idea of just say, yes, just say, yes, there's magic. They tell us in saying yes. And 
I believe that, but there is a caveat. There's a footnote here. There's a, there's a catch years ago. I joked with friends when I first started doing some of this consulting and coaching that I've now done for over a dozen years that I needed to, I just need to wear a sandwich board. I said, you know, you know, the kind from history people, I don't, I don't know how long ago, you know, forties, maybe even in the fifties, you know, these sandwich boards that you'd slide over your, over your head and a sign on the front and there's a sign on your back. And these guys are walking up and down the sidewalk usually hawking some retail store or some product. And I joke that I just need to get a sandwich board sign that says anything for a buck, (laughs) but it does speak to how many of us behave. We're just, we're chasing generalities, anything for a dollar. Well, anything for a dollar is an enormous generality, but what if it's, I shine your shoes for a dollar. What if it's, I vacuum your car for a dollar. Now there's more specificity to it. You like that word? And I pronounced it correctly. Listen, I agree that there are, there's big power in saying yes to opportunities. I also agree that we quite frankly can over, we can frankly overlook opportunities maybe because of our reticence to say yes sometimes. However, I think there's also magic in saying no. In fact, I could make a strong case. I think that the power of saying no could likely more easily best or trump saying yes. Elmore Leonard is a novelist and there's a line from one of his books that I rather love. Most, my most important piece of advice to all you would be writers, when you write, try to leave out all the parts readers skip. My most important piece of advice to all you would-be writers, said Elmore Leonard, when you write, try to leave all the parts readers, try to leave out all the parts that readers skip. Which prompted my memory of another great quote, quote by Steve Jobs, focusing is about saying no. He was right, of course. It is all about what we reject. Good writing, good storytelling, good speaking, frankly, Good anything probably is about what's left out, not what is included. Good art, good music, the same thing. Michelangelo said every block of stone has a statue inside it, and it is the task of the sculptor to discover it. I mean, it was, after all, the elimination of the marble that gave us Michelangelo's David. The elimination, the elimination of other things gives us focus. I learned very early on in my career, my business career, that if everything is important, nothing is important. In fact, so much so that I made a sign and it stayed in my office for years and years and years. And that was born from my years as a teenage salesperson working for a business owner who acted as though every single thing had the weight of the entire business on it. And I remember him barking at us constantly. He was a tyrant. I remember him barking at us constantly that the devil was in the details and all all these, all these trite things. It's the details that matter. And I don't disagree with that. What I disagreed with was the fact that anything and everything is urgent. Anything and everything 
is an emergency. Anything and everything is important. Nothing is really more important than anything else because I learned very early and our whole staff learned it. And it was demoralizing. If everything is important, then nothing is important. And it just didn't matter because we were never going to get ahead of it anyway. The elimination of other things gives us focus. That sounds easy, but it's not. And that's why focus is so tough for many of us. You know, there are many days that I sometimes feel like that little kid in that movie, Sixth Sense. Everywhere I look, I see opportunities. No, they're not all created equally. But man, a lot of them seem worthy of some consideration. But then there's an acid test that kicks in. Well, it kicks in eventually. And that acid test is time. Time. What I stay focused on grows more often than not. Now, I don't often, I don't know, do you? I don't often quit too soon. If anything, I likely overstay my welcome on a yes. And many times I don't likely quit soon enough. And it's not because I'm reluctant to quit, but I may succumb to the same thing that you and most of us succumb to. And that is we we've already invested so much time. Yeah. We hate to walk away. I don't know if car dealers do it much anymore. They probably do. Uh, the way I, well, number one, I hadn't bought a car in a long, long time. Uh, but when I did buy cars, I just, the way I bought cars was, well, that's a whole different story. I didn't go in and do the normal routine, but by and large people that go in to a car dealership, you ever notice you can't go in and buy a car. It's just not a quick process. Even if you're paying cash, it's not a quick process. And it's not a quick process because there's a psychological ploy. There's a psychological game that gets played that the more hours that you are there, your, your walk away point diminishes over time, right? you you come in the showroom and you see what you want. And, and there's also the emotion of, man, it's a new car. Well, oh, doesn't that smell great? I'll look at it, man. I can see myself behind the wheel of this thing and this thing. Great. So there's that element to it coupled with. We've been here for two hours. We ain't, we ain't leaving here without that car. Okay. Well, they're banking on that, right? You sunk cost. You've already got so much time in it. You're not the more time you devote, the less likely you want to walk away because you don't want to give up that time, which frankly, in many, 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 many cases, you would be far better off if you cut your losses and walked out, but they're hoping you don't. I, I can succumb to the same thing. Come on. We all can. We're human. I really have a hard time quitting too soon or quitting soon enough when the endeavor involves other people, because I lean into keeping the thing going in hopes that if it hasn't gained traction, it might. And there's that whole tipping point thing, right? You don't know. I mean, okay. It doesn't have good traction, but it's got some traction. And well, what, what, I mean, what if tomorrow, what if next week it, it picks up steam? There's only one way to find out. And I can tell you what drives me as much as any of it is not just the pursuit of the outcome, but it's the curiosity. Will it? Well, I mean, there's only one way to find out. We got to do it, right? We got to stick with it to see. And I really want to see. Now there comes a point where I'm like, okay, I've seen enough. 
I don't have any faith in this and I'm sick of doing this. I don't want to do this anymore. And so over time I may realize that I have a vision. Maybe I have an ambition. It might not be congruent with the other people that are involved in this thing, right? It happens, but I love the relationships and the promise that something special might happen as a result of our working together. And so my tendency is, this is just me. My tendency is to stay probably longer than I even should. And that's fine. I can live with that. And then there's another element because some things just bore me. So I move on. Other things don't bore me. And so I hang on to those things longer. The things that linger through whatever thick and thin may happen. Those tend to get rewarded with a deeper focus. That doesn't mean they pay off. I'm not saying that now, you know, because then that would presuppose that just start something and stick with it. And if you stick with it long enough, you'll succeed. Well, that's just not true. Your life will prove that my life proves it. It's just not true. You know, I don't know. Maybe I'm pushing, maybe I push more time to some things and I push less time for other things. Well, I do. I know I do. Does time move focus or does focus move time? It's a good question. Does time move our focus or does focus move our time? In my life, it seems to work both ways simultaneously. And for me, fear plays a role. I bet it does for you too, right? We've got this new, this new FOMO fear of missing out. That's a real thing. I got news for you before we knew what FOMO was. That's always existed. People have always feared missing out on something, fear of losing out on something, fear of failure, fear of success. All of these and many more are in play. So we look around and maybe, I don't know, pick a number. We've got eight irons in the fire because we think that it will improve our odds that, okay, we've got eight in there. One of them's bound to get hot. Hey, let's put two more on there. Cause now we got 10. Well, surely if we got 10 in there, one of them's bound to get hot, right? Fear of missing out on that hot iron. Fear of losing out on an iron that would get hot if only we had put it in the fire. So put another iron on the fire and we put as many irons in the fire. Well, some of us put as many irons in the fire as we can. Fear of not having a hot iron thinking more is better. More will, I mean, come on, isn't it a mathematical truth? Won't it improve our odds of getting a hot iron if we have more irons in the fire? It sounds smart. It sounds wise. No, it is foolish. It is stupid. And we all do it to some degree. I once had a business acquaintance. He was famous for saying, I've scratched every itch I've had. He was 15 years or so older than me. I've scratched every itch I've had. And if you looked at his career, it was certainly true. In fact, he even told my now grown son, who was a teenager at the time, he said to Ryan, he said, unlike your dad, who is a rock steady guy, I have scratched every itch I ever had, which seemed to be, I don't know. There was something psychological about that. I mean, here he deems me as a rock steady guy. I, I mostly would agree with that while he, on the other hand, had hopped and jumped and he'd done this and done that and done the Southern, done the Southern and. You know, it's kind of that 27 year career one year at a time versus a 27 year career, just all in on that, whatever that is. 
you know, some people can't resist scratching every itch and others of us, we don't have that many itches and still others of us. We just maybe have the discipline to not scratch every itch we have lots of irons in the fire. It can work for some, come on, there's outliers in everything. There's exceptions to everything, but history and my experience have shown me it is extremely rare. In fact, as I was preparing for today's show, I can't think of a single instance where I have seen somebody with a lot of irons in the fire. I've never seen it work out. I might be overlooking some. And if I spend a lot of time thinking about it, I probably could come up with some exception, but I've already spent, I don't know. I spent a good hour thinking about it and I couldn't come up with any in my experience. Doesn't mean my experience is statistically valid. Specificity works. It works. And it requires the elimination of other things, even worthwhile things. When Tom Peters and Bob Waterman wrote their famous book that really launched business books in general, in search of excellence, we were introduced to a phrase that Tom Peters would commonly use in his public presentations. It was a phrase that was in that book, monomaniac on a mission. He described a leader as a monomaniac on a mission. And we see this over and over and over again. We see a person with a single-minded pursuit of a dream, a goal, what I call an ideal outcome, their ideal outcome. And the challenge is we often see highly accomplished people pursuing multiple endeavors. Think Elon Musk. Elon Musk. Tesla is the thing. Yeah, but then there's SpaceX, and if you Google it, there's, oh, there's a handful or more other endeavors that I don't mean he's just some passive investor. He's, he's, he's tethered to. Underachievers and ordinary folks like us, we, we pursue greater success, and we look at them, and we conclude, well, see, see, look at, look at Elon Musk. I mean, the path forward seems to be to be involved in a lot of things, right? Multiple streams of income and all that. I mean, just Google multiple streams of income and you will get recommendations of all kinds of books, all kinds of videos, all kinds of courses on how it is the path toward financial prosperity, multiple streams of income. And we look at Elon Musk and we look at all the other big hitters and we say, see that, I mean, that's what they're doing. What we're not told is that most achievements and success happened because the person was a monomaniac on a mission. And when that mission achieved some success, that's when the other pursuits erupted because of the success of that first endeavor. Yeah. But we incorrectly assume that success was the result of the multiple streams of income. We don't view that the multiple streams of income resulted because of the success The multiple streams of income were mostly the result of success in a single pursuit. Sometimes, well, sometimes I ponder a lot of questions too much, mostly in the context of, in this case, professional pursuits. And I wrote this question down years and years ago. What do I want to be known for professionally? 
Now that was the context for me, but you can apply it to any area of your life. What do I want to be known for? You realize we're all going to be known for something. Well, I'll go you better right now. You are known for something. You are known as something not likely. Is it a long list of somethings? Henry Ford is noted for Ford motor company. Edison for electricity, Getty for oil jobs, Steve jobs for Apple, Bill Gates, Microsoft, Michael Dell, Dell. Okay. Well, we don't, we're not in that circle, but you're known for something. What are you known for? What one thing are you known for? I'm not saying that that one thing is the complete totality of who you are. Henry Ford, Edison, Getty, Steve Jobs, Gates, Michael Dell, these and all the others, Elon Musk. I mean, these are multifaceted people, but primarily known for something. Specialization works. It demands that we avoid generalization. But you know, being well-rounded, that doesn't, I mean, that doesn't, that, that sounds right, doesn't it? I mean, it seems like the way to go. And we incorrectly assume that specialization means well, th- then you can't be well-rounded. You el- if you're going to specialize, then you eliminate being well-rounded. Well, tap the brakes on that thought. Why? That's not true. It just means that you're going deeper into something specific. You know, you already experienced this. If you are a sports fan, you likely have a favorite sport. And if you are a sports fan, sports being a plural, you likely enjoy multiple sports, but you got a favorite one. Well, examine that favorite one that you've got. I don't care what it is. It could be English soccer for all all I care. There's one that you know more deeply than the others. One that you keep track of more than you do the others. One that has priority, one that has greater focus for you. If you're a history buff, you likely have some favorite time period that you really enjoy reading about or studying. We are all acquainted with going from a broad topic to a more narrow portion of that same topic. That is specificity. College kids do it all the time. They do it when they declare a major. They earn a specific degree. Okay, yeah, sure. There are these brainiacs who earn multiple degrees at the same time. No, that's not the norm, but even those kids, mostly their degrees tend to be somewhat closely related, right? I mean, a a kid could, I guess a kid could earn some degree in mathematics and simultaneously earn a a degree in some other hard science. And if they don't earn the degree simultaneously, what you will likely find if, if the fields of study are very different you will likely see that they earned those degrees at different times so they could focus on a specific subject at a time. I'm going to embed a video that I did in 2017. I don't know how long it is. It's not very long. It's just minutes long. And I entitled this video, Too Many Irons in the Fire, Going from Start to Finish. It's video only. There isn't even any audio. And it is... It is a camera looking down on my desktop. I don't mean my computer desktop. I mean my physical desktop and it's my hands and it's a blank piece of paper and it's a Sharpie. And I'm, if you follow, if you follow it, you'll get the point.
I'll include it in the show notes, leaningtowardwisdom.com. Just find the episode, Your Time Follows Your Focus. Years ago, there was an article that appeared in, well, it, it, I saw it online, uh, Inc. Magazine. Inc. Magazine's website, I'll, I'll link this up as well. And the title of the article is successful people answer a question, which most people are afraid to even ask. Well, now that that's clickbait, right? That got my attention back, uh, whenever it was published. Let me read you one little segment of this article. I want you to stop and imagine the unthinkable. You've just found out that you only have 24 hours to live. There are no second opinions needed. In 24 hours, you will cease to exist in this mortal plane. Let that sink in for a minute. Now, imagine that you are going to write your own eulogy and in it, the following closing sentence. Of all the things, insert your name, of all the things Randy did, the one thing that he was absolutely more committed to than anyone else was blank. What would you fill in the blank with? The article continues one caveat for the purpose of this exercise. You cannot include being a parent, spouse, son, daughter, etc. Each of those is absolutely important to have at the top of your list. But for the sake of this exercise, let's agree that you are all of those things. What I'm looking for is something even deeper, something on which you even on, on which even the success of your most personal relationships was built upon of all the things Randy did. The one thing that he was absolutely more committed to than anyone else was blank. Now it's really easy to read that and to let your head go wherever it's going. But that statement expressing the one thing to which you are most committed speaks to your focus, but it's much, much, much deeper than that, which is why it's a hard question for most of us, because it has this element of comparison in it. What's the one thing you're absolutely more committed to than anyone else than anyone else? Is that even possible? Yeah, there's the rub. I mean, most of us can't fathom being committed to something more than anybody else. That depth, that in, that intensity of focus, it's hard to even get your head wrapped around, isn't it? Here's how the author concludes the article. I'm quoting. Coming up with a good answer to the question is a tall order, isn't it? Again, I said at the outset that this would be uncomfortable. I can tell that you want to push back. Well, if you're doubtful of ever coming up with an answer, then you either aren't trying hard enough or you've already let yourself off the hook. If it's the latter, then there's little I can do to get you to buy into your unique core competency. Welcome to the mass of mediocrity, which far too many people are comfortably inhabiting. That's exactly why successful people often have an answer. They've been forced into the discomfort of having to answer it. Only by doing that have they been able to pull away from the complacency of the crowd. Success demands an answer. What I can tell you unequivocally 
is that one of the greatest sources of personal growth comes from answering that question and identifying what it is that your unique past and pathology have prepared you for, and then dedicating yourself to being the absolute best at whatever that is. Will that guarantee that you'll end up being the best at it? Of course not. But what it does guarantee is that you'll be better off than the overwhelming majority of people who never even thought to ask. You have to discriminate, right? It's a good article, good read. There's a link. Go check it out. We have to discriminate. We have to leave some things out. We have to say no to some things, maybe many things. Vetting things is tough. It's tough because we're not discriminating against things that don't interest us. I don't have to, I don't have to discriminate in my diet, for instance, when it comes to certain foods. I mean, there are certain foods that are just a hard no for me. There's no thought about it. No, I just don't care off my radar. Not going to happen. But there are other things you go to a a restaurant and you look at the menu and it's like, yeah, well, that sounds good. Boy, that, that sounds pretty good. You know, okay. This other sounds good. And then we look at other things and we go, well, that, that sounds awful. I wouldn't eat that. You're not sitting there splitting, spinning plates, trying to decide between the thing that you hate and the thing, the things that you love, you're sitting there looking at all these things that you love and you'd be pretty happy with all of them, but you can only pick one. Well, presumably, unless you want to be big as a barn and you order three or four entrees, it's tough. It's tough to do, but we've got to wrestle with these things. And sometimes we have to wrestle with many things because, well, we're interested in many things. And now we have to measure the degree of interest. Which ones do you care about more? And maybe we have to ask ourselves, and why? Why do I care about this one more than that one? Which things here in this list do we care slightly less about? Which ones do we absolutely not care about? Well, those are easy to jettison off the list. This whole quantification game It's often not very fun because, well, I want that. Yeah, I want that too. Yeah, give me this other thing too. Yeah, okay, well, it gets way harder when you say, okay, pick one. It's necessary. Two things hamper our ability to properly properly discriminate. In my judgment, in my experience, and in my life, two things. There are many other things probably that enter into it, but these two seem to be the big ones. Worry and fear. And what if I say no to the wrong thing? What if I say yes to the wrong thing? What if I get it wrong? What if I quit too soon? What if success was just around the corner, but I walked away? What if I would have hung in there just another week, another month, another year, another decade? What if we rob ourselves of success in something? And what if we're wrong? What if we're wrong in thinking that narrow is better? What if many irons in the fire is the right approach? Self-delusion. It is very, very easy. And we don't have to be a super salesman for self-delusion to be sold and bought. We can convince ourselves of false truths with no effort at all. People do it all the time. You don't think so? Go to, Get on social media. <laughs> there are people that are 
I I've used this as a, to really overemphasize a true point. You do, you do realize there are people who believe the earth is flat, right? You know, there are these flat earthers. Yeah. We can convince ourselves of false truth with no effort at all. And as we listen to our inner voice, we begin to question one thing and then we question something else and then something else and then something else. And, and well, eventually we just get stuck paralyzed. You know why? Well, because we've got this tight grip on every option. We, I want, yeah, that iron. Oh, I can't take that iron out. of. Don't take that iron out of the fire. Leave that iron in there that I've had that iron in there for 10 years. Yeah. Well, guess what? I've got my hand on it. It's cold as ice. Why is it still in the fire? Well, cause I got 10 years in it. It might, it might heat up. I've had, I couldn't tell you how I couldn't even venture a guess at how many conversations I've had with, particularly with business owners about some business endeavor, some business initiative, some process, some system, and had the, that exact same conversation and said, well, and how's that working out? Oh, well, it's not working out. Well, how long you been doing it? Oh, I don't know. I guess we started it back in 2010 and you're like, and it's not working out real well. Uh, probably no, not really. And why are you still doing it? Well, we think it's a pretty good, you know, and then they, they put the salesman hat on and they start trying to pitch me, trying to convince me that it still is a good idea that they're continuing to pursue this thing. And, you know, for me, it's tantamount to, I've touched that iron that you stuck in the fire in 2010. It's not even, I mean, it's room temperature. I, why, why is it taking up space? And while I really haven't fully thought it out and talked about it, but it does cross my mind every now and again, we just, I guess we think that this fire is, is an infinite resource that bigger fire. The, the problem is you've got stuff taking up space in the fire. You've got things that are consuming heat in the fire, but that heat is not being transferred i.e. you're focused on some things that aren't working out and they're never going to work out. But you're hoping that they will because, well, come on, it's been in the fire for 12 years. I mean, come on, it's bound to get hot. Really? Well, you'd think it would be warmer than room temp, wouldn't you? After 12 years? It's not. You're stuck. You're stuck. Entrepreneurs and would-be entrepreneurs wrestle with a, a wide variety of ideas. You will not find many people entrepreneur know who, who just don't have a litany of ideas. Now, frequently most people just don't narrow them down much less execute, right? Afraid to commit to one because that means they got to neglect some others. I don't want to neglect any of them. Guess what you do. You end up neglecting all of them. <laughs> I don't want to turn loose of any of these ideas. I don't want to turn loose of any of these irons. Any one of them could get hot and none of them are. And they're amazed at why nothing's catching fire. You know, it's like, it's like that proverbial monkey reaching into a jar to grab that peanut. They won't let go. And so as a result, they are stuck with their hand in this jar, unable to pull out the peanut and eat it and unable to let go for fear that they'll lose the peanut. And they're stuck in every sense of the word. They are stuck. One small move helps us get past the fear, the worry, and the anxiety. And the challenge is to stop long enough to get in touch with ourselves, long enough to ask ourselves, what am I feeling right now 
and why. If the business owner who started some process in 2010 and that process has never worked and it's still not working, why is that owner, that business owner feeling like this process, it it will one day work? I can tell you why. And with enough thought and time, so can he. Because we got 12 years invested in this thing. Don't tell me that we started a process 12 years ago that we should have stopped 11 and a half years ago. <laughs> Follow the money. In the Watergate days, that's what Deep Throat, that secret informant to the Washington Post reporters who were investigating that Watergate fiasco, that's what Deep Throat advised. He advised these two in- young investors, young at the time, investigative journalists, follow the money, follow the money. And they did. And sure enough, what they unearthed was a truth that led to the resignation of a president. Well, we don't need to follow the money necessarily. I mean, you can, but when it comes to this topic of focus and situativeness, we need to follow the fear. And why would we do that? Well, because that's where the focus is. More importantly, that's where the action happens. Or that's the reason that the action doesn't happen. If there's anything more fearful than fear, it's following fear. We would rather avoid fear. We would rather run from fear, hide from fear, anything but face fear. And that temporary respite that all of us get when we refuse to face fear, it disappears pretty quickly, though. Hiding from our fear is the best thing we can do to increase it. It is the very best thing. Hiding from fear is the very best thing you can do to grow, magnify your fear. If you want to grow your fear, advice number one, and the only advice you need is run from it. You want your fear to grow, run from it and keep running from it. Stop and turn around and face it and it will begin to shrink. Keep your back to it and keep running. It's growing bigger all the time and faster. Here's the thing. You are not unarmed. You've got the weapons necessary to defeat fear, your fear. And they are the same weapons that empowered that fear to grow. Yeah, you know what it is. It's your thoughts. It's your thoughts. I've confessed there, there are a number of situations where I'm an overthinker. And in recent years, I've learned one of the primary reasons for this is that I am fiercely independent, creatively so. I am wired to look for some solutions. I am wired, I'm wired toward dissatisfaction with the status quo. And put it all together, and I can gear up in overthinking a million ways to make it work or to make it work better or to question why it's not working better and what do we need to do to get it to be better. And before I know it, I may be leaning into what would be a strength too much. So much so, and I'm pretty sure I said this last week, so much so that it becomes a a weakness and in some cases a big weakness. Fear can grow. It can grow when that cycle begins. The solution? Well, the solution for me is to get quiet. 
to get quiet, silence the noise in my head. That for me, that starts, that starts the cycle. Recognize that I'm looking for better solutions instead of taking action. Sometimes opt out of thinking and opt in on doing. Now, the good thing for me is I've got a real propensity to just try to figure out what's the very next step and take that step. I'm not reluctant at all in taking that next step. I can be reluctant because my curiosity, I kind of like to know what step two is going to be, you know, and I'm, and I really would love to know what step three and four are going to be. Okay. But I don't, I don't. And I have to realize that while I'm taking action, I can, and I naturally will, and you will too, we will adapt, right? It'll be just like this podcast. It'll iterate. It'll pivot along the way. And it'll only speed up my problem-solving abilities. By going slower, I can go much, much faster. We fool ourselves. We all do. We fool ourselves. And it's the game that we have to try our best to avoid. Self-delusion. Thinking, ah, that iron's been in the fire for 12 years. Yeah, I know. I Here, touch it. Yeah, I know. I can feel it. It's not hot. You're right. It's not hot. But, man, it, you know, but it might be. It could be. Yeah, and you can think that the world's flat too. Spreading our schedule too thin is something else that we have to avoid if we're going to hit this land of high achievement. And many of us do this. We're going from here to there, and we feel like there's power in this frenetic pace. Many people, many of us, we confuse motion with action. Now, just because you're in perpetual motion does not mean that you're getting anything done. Go to a pet store if you don't have a hamster and watch the hamsters on the wheel. Run, 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 run. Spin that wheel. Spin it faster. Keep spinning it faster. You're still on the wheel. You're not going anywhere. Keep doing what you've always done. You'll always get what you've always got. Right? We've all heard this trite saying, but it's powerfully true. Keep doing what you've always done. You'll always get what you always got. Problem is that is not necessarily true. Bigger problem is that is the best case scenario. Keep doing what you've always done. You'll always get what you always got. If you're lucky, you may not be able to achieve even as, even as much as you once did by continuing to do what you, what you once did, because it may have worked better then than it does now. The likelihood is it did work better then than it will work now. So yeah, as we say here in Texas, that dog won't hunt. Your time follows your focus. It's episode eight for the year. Clipping right along. Don't know if I'll get around to it next week, but coming up in a future show, maybe next week, I'm going to pose the question, got anybody who cares enough about you to help you improve? Got anybody in your life who helps you enough that they challenge you? They love you enough they're making, they're willing to make you feel 
uncomfortable, not with unkindness, but because they want your best. I've had people like that. I've needed people like that. And look for that in an upcoming episode. The website is leaningtowardwisdom.com. My name is Randy Cantrell. City of origin is Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas. Greetings and welcome inside the Yellow Studio.